I've been calling you Warwick for years because I remember. That's at, right. At, that's correct. Okay, that good. That is correct. Because a lot of our friends call you Warwick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm easygoing about it, so um, I just don't really give a shit. Um, <laughs> some people get very upset about it, though. Like they're just like, "No, his name is Warwick," and I was just like, "I don't, guys, <laughs> don't care." Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember your freshman year when I met you, or someone was like, and this guy is Warwick. Isn't that the coolest name? And then like a week later, you corrected somebody, and I was like, oh, Warwick. Oh, okay. So I was very careful from then on to call you gotcha. Warwick. And now well, it's just been so long that I, I I didn't remember if that was actually correct or not, or if that's just <laughs> a story that I kind of manufactured in my own brain. No, yeah, no, that's right. I think uh, probably that was one of the few times that I like had actually just been like, "Oh, the the second W is silent." But it's one of those <laughs> things where I just don't, I don't really care because you know it's a weird name. I understand that, so I don't get bent out of shape about it. Yeah, and it's literary, isn't it? Isn't it from Shakespeare? Uh, which which one? Um, yeah, it's well, like from the history. So like, uh, it plays a big part in the Henrys and because uh, the War of the Roses was the um, the Earl of Warwick was the one right, who was okay. he became known as the Kingmaker because of that. Um. So yeah, it's literary. It's a like a state in England. Or it's like a, I guess yeah. county. I don't know what they necessarily have, um, but it's that's the name of it. And so, like the castle is named Warwick and things like that. So okay, yeah. I don't know. It's all right. You're, you're, you know, were your folks uh, artistic or did they, just history uh, buffs? What is. was the deal there? Yeah, my mom is. Uh, she's you know she's an English teacher now, but before she was an actress and she was very involved in like the arts and things like that. So, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense then. Um, and Johnson's easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Johnson's <laughs> real easy. Well, it's funny too because it's um, it's my full name is Warwick Sebastian Johnson. Mm-hmm. This is one of those weird names, and then it's Johnson. So I'm just yeah. I don't know I don't know what to make of any of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it's an awesome name. Thank it'll, you. It'll look good on the cover of uh, Empty Grave. Yeah, I think so. It'll be definitely stand out, especially because it helps when people are like, oh, you're Warwick. And I'm just like, yep, I'm the only one. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, anyway, so so you just finished a successful Kickstarter campaign for your upcoming first in the series of comic books called The Empty Grave. This is part one entitled Daddy's Little Girl. Is that all correct? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's you know it's a planned four part uh, mini series. Uh, we wanted to run the Kickstarter for this uh, issue uh, because originally Dan and I were just going to do the book in black and white, but we were like, well, we really wanted to bring a colorist in to kind of like make the book even better. So we so we were like, well, we use the Kickstarter to so that we can hire a good colorist, which we have. Uh, Andrea Celestini is doing the art for it. And it looks great. I mean, he's doing the color for it, but it looks terrific. Like the, yeah, the stuff does. that he's doing with uh, with Dan's art has just been ter- like wonderful. Mm-hmm. So we're very happy with it. Um, so the Kickstarter is going to help us with that, and then it's also going to pay for like printing costs and distribution for the book. Yeah. Um, 
The idea is that the first issue, because we ran the Kickstarter, so we're not, we don't have to sink all this money into it. So then the first issue, most of that can be profit. So then the first issue can pay for the second issue, and then it kind of creates like a self-sustaining model. Um, that's the idea, at least, is that uh, the, the each issue is going to pay for the next issue. So cool. We'll see. Cool. So that's I have the... written. I've written issue two, and oh, I wow. am starting on issue three soon. So. Excellent. So Great. that's sort of the business side is the idea of now each each of these is going to essentially pay for the next one. Yep. Um, and kind of with the business part of that, I'm curious because we're living in an age where things are more and more going digital, you guys are making printed copies of these along with a digital version. Is that right? Yes. So uh, what's we, the reasoning behind that? Well, um, it, there's there's a couple things. Um, I mean, first, if I had my way, we would do it just the physical copy of the book because I'm very old school in terms of I like having the physical comic book and things like that. And I know there's a lot of people that, feel the same way. But on the other hand, the digital marketplace is really the future of comic books. Um, it's the way that things are going. There are three different apps that you can get on your iPhone or tablet so that you can, you know, browse comics. You can buy comics directly to your iPhone without leaving and going to a store. So that's a big draw for a lot of people. And so, you know, we really wanted to do a, a nice, you know, PDF version of the book is what we're going to send to our backers. But then also because we'll have converted it digitally, we can then sell it on uh, Comixology, which is an app for um, for like independent comic books as well as some of the, the larger ones so that they can sell uh, their stuff. So we're going to sell the first issue on there as well. Um. And it's, you know, it's, it's a big help for a lot of creators just because, you know, with digital, you can do it yourself. You don't have to spend $600 on printing 200 copies of the book and then rely on a store to sell it and then cutting proceeds. This, it posts digitally. There's no real money putting into it on our end. And we'll sell the book for cheaper, but that's just because our overhead is so much lower on it. Um, so it's good, you know, it's, it, it'll draw in more casual fans, people that don't go to comic book stores, um, and it'll draw in, you know, people that are interested in the book, but don't necessarily want to spend $10 on it. It'll be a good way to bring in some more people to it. Right, so. right. Now it sounds like the way you talk about it, it sounds like this particular, at least the first in the series, Daddy's Little Girl here. Yeah. Sounds like it's more of a more of a labor of love than it is like a, let's make a let's make a business model that really pays us a lot of money for it. It sounds like you want to build oh, an yeah. audience first, and you just want people to hear this story first and see this story first. Yeah, I mean, I, it would be terrific if I made a ton of money on this first issue. I just I just don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but it really is. It really is a labor of love. I'm doing this because, you know, I want to. Dan and I have really kind of created something that's very cool and interesting, and I think that people will become attached to it. And I think as the story progresses, you know, the fan base is going to grow more and more to a point that it might be 
pretty successfully, you know, pretty financially successful. Yeah. Um, but I'm in the beginning, you know, we don't exactly have our, our sites set that high, you know, we're not planning on moving thousands of copies of the book, but you know, we're going to go to conventions and we're going to try and bring in, you know, fans from across the country. So then when we do the second issue next year, probably in the late spring, we'll have the second issue. Uh, so then when that comes out, then, um, you know, then the fan base is already there and we'll have more and more people that get added on. So, yeah, um, I mean, that's, I guess that's the hope with anything. Whenever you start something, you know, start it because you're like the reason I'm doing these podcasts is because I like the medium. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. I have a lot of really interesting and talented friends and I count you among one of them and you're doing this really cool thing. And I want people to hear about that and the way I see it is probably right now it's going to be a very small audience, but as I continue to do these, hopefully what will happen is, you know, people get interested and then go back and like, oh, what were the first couple episodes and that sort of thing. Hopefully oh, yeah. that's the same kind of thing that ends up happening with this, I would assume, is you would grow your audience more and more with each successive issue. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's that's the idea. And I got to say, uh, I just wrote it, but uh, issue two is is really good. Um I'm I'm excited for people to read the first issue, but then uh, then as soon as it comes out, I'm like ah, but I ah, gotta read the second one. <laughs> so it's it's really exciting. It's so the whole series is called the Empty Grave. Yes. Uh, the first issue is Daddy's Little Girl, which we mentioned yep. before. Now this is a western, um, it is. and it's a it's a comic book. So I have to ask you, when did you first get interested in? Well, let's start with comic books because that's the medium, right? Oh well, comic books. I have been a fan for almost as long as I can remember. When I was a kid, and the '90s X-Men cartoon came out, like that was really what I really remember. Got that. Me. Yeah. <laughs> That was, really that was my first exposure really to comic books other than the idea of, oh, there are these things that people collect and the really nice ones are like the old Superman stuff. Because my yeah, uncle yeah. was a collector and I wasn't really much into comic books. But then that cartoon came out and I was like, oh, oh these yeah. are really cool. Um, and now looking yeah. at that cartoon, of course, it's kind of like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever yeah, trips your trigger, whatever gets you started, you know, and I'm not yeah. a personally, I'm not a huge fan of comic books in so much as I don't go buy all the newest issues. But every once right. in a while, I'll grab like a great series once it's all put together. And I oh, certainly yeah. support my friends who are doing comics because I have a fr- few friends who are doing that. So oh, nice. so you got started with the X-Men cartoon as well. Yes, I did. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, his, my brother was a big Transformers fan, but that was just, I was like, I was in the tail end of it when I had started, uh-huh. like, watching it with him. But then that the X-Men cartoon came out, and I just, something about it, I was just like, yes. And then I, I had to buy, like, every X-Men comic that came out, like, and there were, like, a ton of them that came out every month, and I bought, like, all of them. That's where my allowance went to, was X-Men <laughs> books. And then, like, the Batman animated series was going on, so I got really involved in that. So, you know, it started at a young age, and I have been a fan pretty much ever since. Um, it helps that, you know, there really are comics for everybody. It is yeah. basically what it seems like nowadays. Um, there's so many different genres and subgenres in comic books right now. Um, You know, and I buy a lot of issues. I buy them every month, like, when they come out. But then there's some books that I'm interested in, and so I buy the collections, too. 
Um, you know, so it's kind of half and half. And so then that way I really have kind of bought like a wide spectrum of different things, you know, like yeah. I'll buy the walking dead one week and then the next week I'll still pick up, you know, Wolverine's book. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, all over the place, uh, in terms of what I go for in comic books. Um, and even the kind of stuff that I write, um, I like writing some superhero stuff, but for the most part I've been writing a lot of genre-y things, which is especially where Empty Grave comes in. Right, because that's that's a Western. Um, yeah, and it's like a supernatural, almost horror-inspired Western. I was going to ask you that, because I kind of got that, that feel that it was going to be a mixture of genres, uh, yeah. heavily, heavily Western. Um, now, I, and talking about these different genres, and you mentioned a moment ago that there's really a comic book for everyone right now. Would you say that there has been a sort of resurgence in the popularity of comics lately? Or is that just me and oh, my yeah. friends? I'm just noticing my friends are more interested in it. Is that no, general? I think I think generally there has been a pretty big, uh, almost renaissance, if you will, about with comic books. I think a lot of that has to do with the success of comic book movies. Um, yeah. If you go back 10, well, if you go back like 10, 15 years ago, there were only maybe one or two coming out in, in a year, depending. Now, this year, there are six, I believe, in terms of even stuff that's just loosely based on comic books that people don't maybe necessarily realize was originally a comic book. Right. Like, R.I.P.D. was a comic book, and now they're making it into a film. Red, uh, they're the sequel to that is coming out, and that was originally a comic. Um, and so I think the success of the film has really brought in a lot of more of a mainstream audience and with the mainstream audience comes the acceptance of being a comic book fan i mean i don't want to be one of those people that's like oh back in my day but when i was growing <laughs> up and i was in like junior high or whatever i got i was like the only person i knew that read comic books and enjoyed comic books and i got made fun of about that and nowadays everywhere you go people are wearing cats america t-shirts yeah and right there's a part of me that's always like ah it's <laughs> You got it too easy. Um, yeah, but you know, it's it's what we it's what people want, honestly, to a certain extent, is for not not for acceptance, but for people to, but for everyone to appreciate, you know, the idea. Like Captain America is one of my favorite superheroes, and the movie was just awesome. Yeah, and that like, was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, and I can and not before, the original or the the one no, that no, they no, did. Not the one where. Uh, <laughs> with J.D. Salinger's grandson <laughs> was Captain America. Not that one. Um, but uh, but the one with Chris Evans. Right. I can sit someone down and say, if you watch this movie, you will understand why I love Captain America. Like, that's that's what it boils down to. You know, it's it's almost easier for people to understand why people are fans. You know? Right. Because you've got stuff like Avengers, like The Dark Knight, yeah. that are just legitimately good films that yes. are about comic books. So. Yes, and I think that the film industry for decades now has been trying to do justice to comic book movies yeah. and have finally figured it out. And I don't know if it's a matter of how they're telling the story or if you know just the types of stories they want to tell being so fantastical in nature, finally the special effects design has mm. come far enough to 
so that it's not just people who are already fans who will appreciate it. It's people who have no idea what it is they're about to see. They just know it's an action movie. Um, maybe that's part of the reason that they've yeah. been doing so well lately. I have no idea, but I do know that you know the last couple of years of comic book movies in general have been very satisfying. Yeah, I think uh, I was point to I point to two things in terms of like why they're doing well. One is definitely the special effects. You look at uh, the 2004 Hulk movie compared to how the Hulk looked in the Avengers, and yeah. it's leaps and Night bounds and better. Yeah. Like it's incredible. Um, it makes the 2004 Hulk film look like it was done by like by like me i could have maybe you know drawn that on a computer is kind of almost what it looks like um and so the hulk and the avengers is just this really fantastic use of cgi um so i think the advancement of cgi is one thing but the other thing is people are actually taking comic books seriously like a movie like batman and robin uh the joel schumacher one where they had Arnold Schwarzenegger just listing off ice puns as Mr. Freeze. That movie would <laughs> never be made in today's superhero Hollywood, I guess no. you could say. No. Um, you know, you've got people like Christopher Nolan that are taking on Batman and adding it adding into it with like the the gravitas and the weight that it kind of deserves because yeah. people realize that okay, if we do this well, there will be a very large audience for it. Um, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of that is probably because of the Spider-Man films. Like, Spider-Man 2 was one of the best comic movies for a while when it came out. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it, too, was Blade, which is the funny thing. Uh, <laughs> that that Blade was the one that started this kind of this whole thing. And it's really funny that it, it's Wesley Snipes as, like, a vampire hunter is what you can trace it back to. But it's true. Right. That came out in 98 before... Like, Batman and Robin had just, like, bombed horribly. And then Blade comes out, and it's this really dark, serious film. And it made, like, $100 million on, like, a $15 million budget. And that's where people realize it's like, wow, we can actually make money and do well if we just treat it seriously. So it kind of started that trend over again. Yeah, and then you had yeah. X-Men movies, Brian Singer was doing that, and then Spider-Man it really kind of created that snowball effect. Yeah. So, and it's now, funny cuz uh you look back and Blade's not a not a terrific film compared no. to <laughs> compared Com- to other stuff. To to yeah, it, it didn't age as well as maybe some others, you know. Like no. the first the Keaton Batman. Yeah. You know, that aged well. They it's not the same sort of style as the comic book movies that are getting released today. No. Um but it did age well. They did it well for its time which kind of makes it timeless. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. That movie still, it still holds up. I, I still hold though that um, it's, it's almost meant to be a little, it's meant to be really campy and I don't think it comes across as well, especially to kids, but you watch it now as an adult and you, and I was surprised by how campy the movie is. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it's intentional. Like the Joker pulls out a six foot long gun and shoots the bat plane down. Right. I mean, you know, that stuff is meant to be campy. Exactly. So. Exactly. It is a film that achieved its goal. Yeah. Instead yep. of falling short of a goal that it could never possibly reach. Right. Um, and I know for me, you know, there are there are those tentpole films, you know, that, that bring the, the genre along. But I will say as an actor, the first 
when I saw Batman Begins mm. for the first time in my life, I thought, I want to be in a, in a comic book movie. You know, and I don't yeah. really even care all that much about film. Like, I don't typically see films and go, oh man, I'd love to be in a movie like that because I do stage stuff mostly. Right. So, but I remember coming out of Batman Begins thinking, that was incredible. I want to be a part of something like that. Yeah. And that's rare for a movie. That's certainly rare for a comic book movie. And that was sort of like, to me, that was my personal beginning of following comic book movies and being excited about them coming out. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, you know what the funny thing is? is I, I kind of felt the same way with Iron Man. Like when oh, Iron that's Man came a out, great one. It was the first time I was like, oh, man, it'd be so cool to do one of these Marvel movies. Because it yeah. just, it, they just seem like they're having so much fun and they're just good films mm-hmm. um like you could tell that robert downey jr is just having like a, a great time doing iron man and yeah. yeah and the movie is still like really good and enjoyable so yeah i remember yeah. one of the interviews he did he said something to the as he was like talking about doing the film and how excited he was he i believe if i'm not remembering this incorrectly he at one point had to stop himself from continuing to talk because he said, I don't want to get myself in trouble for saying things that may or may not happen. But it was clear from this interview, and this was written, you know, I wasn't even hearing his voice. You know, this was a written, uh, a written out interview. <laughs> it was clear. He was super excited about it. And that's, that's neat for someone of his uh, caliber and status to be so excited to be doing these movies where oh, I yeah. think there was that kind of debacle with, didn't Natalie Portman kind of poo poo the movies that she was in? Is that correct? Am I right about that? Yeah, I I feel like after the first Thor came out, like she made some comments or something. Um, but I mean, she's in the second one, so it must not right. have been that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah, it the, must not have been. The big one that I remember was uh, Hugo Weaving, who was the Red Skull in uh, Captain America. He was just like, oh yeah, this Captain America movie is just garbage, and you know whatever. But I'm just getting paid for it. And I was just like, God. Hugo Weaving, what the hell, man? Yeah, yeah. And it was a good movie. It wasn't a garbage yeah. movie. It was good. Yeah, and he did a good job in it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's just like, sometimes people just get in their own way, I suppose. Because, yeah. you know, I don't I don't think they're going to bring him back for the second one, you know. And Captain America has other villains they can right. throw in. Right, right, right. So we'll see. So that's that's comic books. Yeah. <laughs> so how about that's, westerns? When why let's talk about westerns? Why did um, you a decide to make this a western? And is, is it something you've just always wanted to do, or did the story kind of lend itself to being a western? Where did it all begin? You know, uh, I I just love westerns, just flat out. Uh, it's unabashed. Um, when I was a kid, my brother and I would watch the Man with No Name trilogy, the old mm-hmm. uh, Clint Eastwood's Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Um, we watch those, and it's just like I just get like so enraptured in that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, something about it has always drawn me into it, and so I really wanted to write like a really strong spaghetti western that you know told like a different kind of story. Um, right. And this and this does. It's not only is it kind of supernatural and and or inspired and things like that, but also it's a female protagonist. It's Yes. A female bounty hunter um, that's, you know, in 1880s New Mexico 
that's hunting down, you know, these like some of the like worst of the worst people in this almost lawless territory. Annabelle Cutter, right? Yep, Annabelle Cutter. And uh, and her father was, you know, a famous outlaw, like a, not outlaw, but he was a famous bounty hunter. You know, he started as a Texas Ranger and then he became an, became a bounty hunter so that he could, you know, move out of Texas and settle down with his family and things like that. Um, so it really is a generational story um, mm-hmm. on both sides of it, you know, on both on Annabelle's side about her following in her father's footsteps and the importance of her family. And then even on the outlaws side, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the plot really gets set in motion because Annabelle brings this guy to justice and his brother hears about it and, and he comes looking for her because of it, you know, so it really sets it off. And it, it, the story is as much about, you know, family and duty as it is about, you know, people running around shooting each other and stabbing people in the gut. You know, I mean, that's all, it's all part and part of it and, you know, kind of tied together. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story, I think, because not only is it a female protagonist, but also most of the antagonists are female. Um, there's a town oh. called, there's a town called Haven Springs, which is like this, um, den, I guess, of, uh, like, outlaws and thieves, you know, that the law doesn't go in. Like, people don't go in there because any lawman that goes in doesn't come out, is what they say. Um, and it's run by Granny Collins, who's this, you know, older woman for the Wild West. You know, she's, like, late 50s, but she's just this, like, terrifying presence um, of this woman. And she seems sweet and gentle, but she's almost like a rattlesnake, too. Um, And so she has what she calls her children, and they're the, like, heads. They're, like, the head of this town, you know. And so she runs the whole thing. And so it's – I find it interesting. You know, I find, um, you know, matriarchal societies are always very interesting to me, Um, especially because you look at nature and, for the most part, you know, in the animal kingdom – it's always a queen. It's always, yep. you know, it's a, it's whoever can give birth. They're the ones that have control. And it's interesting that in, not just in humans, but in the mammal, you know, kingdom or whatever, in, in mammals, that gets reversed. And it seems like a lot of times it's the male, it's the alpha male and things like that that are always in control. And so I just am looking at just kind of flipping that. Um, you know, and seeing what it's like to have these two very strong women on opposite sides doing the work of men back in the Wild West when it was, you know, it's that old saying of it's like when men were men and women were men, or that's not the actual saying. <laughs> but, um, there, but there is something inherently interesting about having the protagonist of a comic book be a woman. And a lot of comics have sort of had spinoffs that are mm-hmm. like She-Hulk and, you know... Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman, yeah. Supergirl, you know. And I think this is going to be um, the anti-version of those. Uh, you know, the way you're describing it, this is not a spinoff. Yeah. This is a, this, is the, this is the original idea. This is done for purposes that fulfill the story yeah and 
you know, it's it's something that Dan and I have both been very aware of is that we're both two men that are doing this story of like with mostly women, you know, but something that we had set early on both, you know, the both of us was that um, they weren't going to be sexy. You know, uh, Annabelle is a young woman. and she's, That's another reason she's that you see female comic book characters is just right. to get little boys to go, oh, yeah. and that is clearly also not the case here. In the nineties, it was, they had the like bad girl comics is what they called it. And it was just like these like busty women that were running around in bikinis with giant swords. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's like no armor or whatever. There's like no yeah. protection, but Great. it doesn't, What's not to like? doesn't matter because it's, yeah, it's titillating. <laughs> so this is, this is not that every time, you know, we were very aware that it's like, we are not making them sexy. We're not making them objectified at all. These are just, these are characters who are women and they are not you know it's it's something that we're very aware of um which is i think you know eventually it's gonna get to a point where we don't have to where it shouldn't have to be that way where we we shouldn't have to make a determined effort to not you know to not objectify any character in a comic book we aren't there yet though so it's it is something that we're that we are continuing through it um now is that being that you know, you're very steeped in all sorts of different comic book genres. You've been exposed to it for years. You've been following it for years. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you have to, because I know you, Warwick Johnson, you are not misogynistic, right? Do you right. find, though, that you're fighting, that you have to be consciously aware of how you put together this comic because of your background in comics that are just sort of subconsciously feeding you? Or has it been pretty easy for you to let your own personality be the determining factor of, okay, I'm? it's very easy to steer clear of that, that yeah. sort of portrayal? Well... I mean, it's, you know, it's a little bit of both. I think it is, it's generally easy for me, you know, to not just write and just be like, oh, well, now she's, she's crying because she's a woman and her emotions are weak. (laughs) Um, It's easy for me to not write scenes like that. Um, You know, I can, so it's, you know, Annabelle gets shot early on in the first issue and she still kills a bunch of people while she's wounded because she is a tough person. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it's it's easy for me to write stuff like that because I do kind of think of it as, as characters first. But on the other hand, I mean, there are a lot of, I guess, tropes, you could call them, in comic books. And that have come from years of not outright misogyny, but that more like subtle misogyny that has come through. Um, you know, things like the women in refrigerators thing which was in the 90s, uh, Green Lantern's girlfriend was murdered and stuffed in a fridge for him to find when he came home. And this became this, like, very, it's a very hot-button issue, is that, you know, this is something that happened to a woman in comic books. You would never see it happen to a man in comic books. Um, And so, you know, Gail Simone, who's this just this brilliant female writer, you know, she's... She has mentioned it before in terms of, you know, like things that have happened. And then you refer to it as fridging someone, you know, so there's a history of this kind of thing in comic books in general, you know. So as a fan, it's easy for me to learn that history and like not repeat that those mistakes. Right. It helps that 
refrigerators aren't prevalent in the 1880s. <laughs> but I can guarantee you that they are not going to find pieces of someone stuffed into a receptacle, especially not Annabelle. So. Right. Now, now to me, the you describing that, and I don't know the history of that. I don't know the sort of... Um, the trope. I don't know right. about that. But to me, the way you just described it, in my head, immediately I went, oh, okay, well, you have the superhero. He's in love with this person, and his some arch-villain, someone who is his rival, decides, how do I hurt you most? I'm going to show you the dead body of the person you love. To me, that mm-hmm. doesn't strike me as misogynistic. So where is it because it continued it's... to happen over and over, and it was always women? Yeah. Where did that kind of come in? Because I can see the reverse, too. I can see well, it's a female with a male that she loves, and someone wants th- to preserve that body. To, you know what I mean? Right. So, um, what, where is that? Where, what is to be avoided in that? I guess it's. I guess it's mostly the execution. I mean, out of context, I, I'll say this outright: comic books are weird. Everybody that <laughs> is involved in comic books knows that comic books are weird. Right. Um, so it's it really kind of just boils down to the execution. You know, it's right. the same. <laughs> it's funny, and it's almost the same as like you know what sexual harassment by like the way you touch someone on the back. It's one right. of those things where there's this, almost this subtle line, you know, um, Alex DeWitt was her name was the, the woman, um, that they, a green lantern's girlfriend. And, you know, her death scene was this really like graphic and like violent thing, you know? And then, you know, when the, the discovery of her, cause this was, I think, like three or four issues. This was a brand new Green Lantern. He had just replaced the guy who had been Green Lantern for years and years. Um, and so he was brand new and it was like his fourth issue in. So this is like four months into this character. Everyone's become really attached to him and to his girlfriend who was this like positive influence and in helping him learn how to be a superhero. And then all of a sudden it's just like, boom, violent death. Uh, boom, you know, like gruesome discovery. And then he beats up the villain and that's, I mean, that's it. Like, you know, and so it's the, the fact that they take this character and you do this just for pathos, you know, ah, just to be, I see. It's like, Oh, I'm so angsty because the woman I love was murdered. And then it's just, it's one of those things where it's, it's the idea I understand, but it really is the execution. Yeah. You know, and that's what it boils down to. Like, out of context, that kind of thing happens all of the, all of the time, like, constantly. You know, uh, one of Batman's sidekicks was beaten to death with a crowbar and then blown up by the Joker. I mean, that, that happens. That was a male sidekick. Um, so, you know, it happens in comic books. People die in order to give reasons. But it was just the way that it was done and the context with which it was done. That's really what I think a lot of people have had have taken issue with. Yeah, and the fact that it becomes a recurring theme. Yeah, targeted mostly at the female characters. Yeah, yeah, it happens over and over again. You know, it's it's one of those things, and so it has become kind of a I don't know catchphrase, I guess, for that that moment. You know, you you say that they they've fridged someone when they they kill the hero's love interest. You know, it's one yeah. of those things. Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, you know, these are just 
these are just these are tropes. These are things that have happened in comic books, and being aware of them is a very easy way to avoid, you know, putting something out there that people could be really offended by, or or even anything, you know, or something like that, you know. Yeah. Do you have you ever found yourself in the position where you've not painted yourself in a corner, but you, you you've got a plot device, and you go, man. This would be so cool to do this thing. However, it has been done a hundred times, but it actually fits here. Have you come across that in this series at all, in the writing? Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely have. I mean... And do you just decide, you know what, screw it, I'm going to do it? Or do you decide, you know what, I need to change something about it? Half the time I say, screw it, I'm going to do it. And the other half, I subvert expectations i guess you could say um i don't want to give too much away about the plot but there is a very notable trope that comes up in the first the very first issue and instead of the normal conclusion it goes it's a it's the drastically different conclusion than you than what you see when when the main character finds himself in a situation so i mean i do sometimes you know I think it's just a sign of good storytelling to be like, this is what the audience is expecting because they are smart readers. And then to really be able to surprise people goes a long way. You know, I I don't often like, I do enjoy writing twists, but I don't often like to write stories for the sake of having a twist. Um, You know, but if, if, if something is going a certain way, you know, to be able to change it completely makes a makes a big difference. And it really keeps the audience on their toes because now they're like, oh, well, anything can happen, you know. There is a moment at the end of the first issue that I think people realize that literally anything can happen in this series. And, um, and that's good. That's how I want them to feel. Um, it's similar to the way, like, that George R. R. Martin does with Game of Thrones, is that he says, this is what the audience is expecting. He does the complete opposite. <clears throat> and then that way they know, well, well, no one is safe. Anything can happen. So. Yes, I've heard that about that series, that uh, it's yep. don't don't get too attached to anyone because you think that they're too important to die, and they're not. Um, yeah, so, don't know. get attached to anybody. I mean, <laughs> I have like a list of my favorite characters on it, but I, and every time they're seeing him, I'm always just like, oh, Please don't die. Ah. <laughs> don't kill Bron. Yeah, I mean that's and so that's what it is, and that's good. Yeah. You know, I like I like feeling that way going into a show to just not have any clue what's going to happen. Yeah, um, and that is kind of rare. That is kind of rare. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break here to uh, talk about our sponsor. Uh, that's uh, just like it was last time. Actually, it's Chris Rogers Base and Photography, and you can. Uh, Go to MrChrisRogers.com. That's M-R-K-R-I-S-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. So Chris, is uh, he's a great guy, lives out in Astoria, New York. So if you're in the New York area, you can use him for his two specialties. First is that he is an amazing bass player, upright and electric. Um, Second is that he is a phenomenal photographer as well. Uh, He did my headshots. Uh, he does more than just headshots, though. He'll do, um, you know, engagement photos, and I'm sure you could probably 
uh, beg and plead for him to do a product shot or something for you. But he's a great photographer, a great bass player. Um, he does offer both of those services. Again, you can check him out at mrchrisrogers.com, and that is Chris with a K, uh, M-R-K-R-I-S-R-O-G-E-R-S dot com for Mr. Chris Rogers Basin Photography. Thanks again for the sponsorship. Um, yeah, so check him out. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. He's a buddy of mine. We uh, we actually knew each other in high school, and uh, I, he he lent me his couch for a little while while I was in New York. Excellent. Very very kind of him to do. He's a great guy, you know. But Excellent. Uh, anyway, so another question I have for you. Sure. You you said earlier that there's and you know I don't want you to give anything away. Right, because right. I certainly because I've I've backed your Kickstarter, so you're the second. You're I'm now two for two in people that I've interviewed who have had a k- successful Kickstarter campaign. And what nice. did you, you raised forty three hundred? Uh, yeah, four thousand three hundred and eighty. I think was the final figure. So Excellent. we were going for four thousand. So um, now with that little over, basically all of Kick- Kickstarter's fees are covered. So oh, we're good. gonna get we're right gonna around get your 4, amount. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Which is really what we need. So yeah. it's good. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I know that uh, I read a little bit. That's how you ended up being able to hire your colorist. Yep. Is through that. Um, so without giving anything away, because like I said, I want to be surprised when I get my copy too. I, I, oh, yeah. I got a. I'm going to get the digital. And I think I'm going to get the print if I rem- if I read it correctly. Otherwise, yes. I'll just buy them. I don't care. Um, I think you. I think you will. Yeah, you'll um, get the copy of it. So without giving anything away. What is you alluded to a supernatural element? Does that show itself right away? Is it kind of just buried in there? Is it kind of like um, introduced like it was in the TV series Lost, where it's like at first it's not supernatural, and then it's like, wait a minute, they uh, it's it's talked about a lot, it's mentioned a lot in the in the book, um, and then it really comes into play uh, towards the end of the of the first issue. Um, and the, the subsequent issues then become much more supernatural, much more involved with it. Um, but it's a lot of playing with, um, Navajo, uh, folklore and things like that. Um, there's a concept of what they call the skinwalkers and I've kind of reappropriated it to the world of the book. Um, you know, and the skinwalkers, the idea is, is that these are like cursed people that are forced to like kind of walk the land and they become almost these like deformed creatures. Like they become like part, it's basically the, the native American version of werewolves. Okay. Um, is what skinwalkers is. And so, um, now is that based on, is that based on actual folklore? Is that folklore that you have invented for the series? That's, that's based on actual folklore. Um, the one that I've kind of invented for the series is that um, the way that the skinwalkers are cursed is that they, you know, they die with this great rage in their hearts. So it brings them back. Um, and that's the twist that I added to it. Uh, but for the most everything else is basically straight from from Navajo folklore, you know, um, from uh, in the book, Annabelle's father worked with the Navajo. You know, he was. He was one of the few like white men that were allowed into the village and things like that. And so he has, you know, he has helped them in this area. Um, It's set. One of the settings of it is the actual frontiers town of Gallup, New Mexico, which Mm -hmm. still exists. I 
but it was a big trading post for uh, the Americans and or for you know for the white settlers and for uh, the Navajo and a couple of the other Native American tribes that were in that area. Gallup was their big almost like trading center, and so that's why the town exists basically. Um, and so, you know, for William, who's Annabelle's father, you know, the Navajo are a very important part of his life. So he knows a lot about them and he knows a lot of their stories and he tells them to Annabelle in, in some of the flashbacks, you know, and we see it in her present day. You know, she's named her horse after the horse from uh, Monster Slayer, which is the one of the big like Navajo myths um, was about these about Monster Slayer who would hunt down, you know, the the demons and everything that, that were stalking the early peoples. You know, Monster Slayer hunted them down and destroyed them so that man could be free kind of thing. Um, basically like Jason the Argonauts and Hercules, but wrapped up in one person and his wing and horse kind of thing. Well, that sounds um, fantastic. I, I tell, I've been yeah. excited about this for a while, ever since you announced it, and I started looking at some of the amazing artwork that you guys have um, and the examples of, like, here's what a colorist adds and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I've just – I love the style. I love the look of it. And now that I'm getting to know a little bit more of the story, man, I'm I'm jazzed <laughs> to read this thing, Warwick. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I actually really want to layer in more of the folks um, as it goes in. So I might, you know, there's going to be flashbacks in the, in the rest of the issues. The first issue is basically half flashback and half in the present day of 1880, um, where you really see why, why Annabelle is the way that she is. You see her family life. Um, that's why the flashbacks are important because it's really setting the stage for the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the empty grave, uh, started out originally as a play, and then I've since adapted it to a comic book. Right. Um, so that's why I really wanted to be able to layer in a lot of the backstory because that's something you can't do in a play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but uh, I'm just a huge sucker for myths and folklore and everything. Um, I always have been. So any chance to to play with mythology and yeah. to work to something, I'm always going to go for that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Yeah. So I've kind of got one more question for you, and that revolves around uh, your working relationship with Dan Hale, who is your – well, what does Dan do? Does he do the inking as well? Yes, Dan does the pencils and inks, and he's also – he does the lettering. Um, The lettering he does through through Photoshop and everything, so I mean it's – he says it's very quick. And easy, so because I was, I was like, well, we could maybe you know find someone to do the lettering. He's like, nah, I don't know. He said, <laughs> so he does it all. Uh, Dan is terrific. Um, I have been blown away by his art and his style, uh, kind of since I first saw it. Um, you know, he really has a very um, unique. You know, it's cartoony, but yet it's also very realistic, and you know, he's able to convey emotion very well, as well as I mean, there's some. There's some pages where just he's got there's just so many exit wounds, you know, in these gunfights, and it just, <laughs> looks, it just looks so good. Um, so yeah, I mean, so you know, Dan's got a really terrific style. Um, I met him; he was roommates with a guy that I did a show with, the Chicago Mammals, back in 2011. 
Um, it was Ted Evans. You know, Ted and I were kind of buddies while we were working on the show. And then he was like, yeah, my roommate's a comic book artist. And so he introduced us. I pitched him the story. And then, you know, we've kind of been, been working and getting the ball rolling and things like that. Um, you know, last year we, both of us had like pretty big setbacks. I like my job situation kept changing. I got married. I was very busy. Uh, so we like, like we, how you like, added, you got married into the list of setbacks. It was, it was, <laughs> was terrible. Oh, was, uh, just awful. Well, um, you married, you married, you got, but, you married a wonderful, wonderful woman, Jesse, uh, Jesse and I, you are very, very lucky to be together. It's true. Yeah. She's great. Um, I, but the, the wedding itself took a lot of my time. Yes. yes so of course. we, you know, so we didn't work on it for a whole lot last year, but then last fall we really started working on it. Yeah. So then from there, basically, so since last fall, we've kind of been working on it um, nonstop, just about. And um, yeah, and I mean, it comes along great. Every time he sends me a new page, I'm always just like, yeah, this is awesome. And I get just like really excited. Um, And he's a great guy, too. Like Dan and I are buddies. And, you know, he's just a really like great dude. And, you know, he really cares about comics and like other people um we really we recently started this like monthly get together of really you know local comics people that are like kind of starting out you know so everybody's just kind of starting to get projects off the ground you know nobody's really super established and you know dan started this as as a way that you know people can help each other out so we have these meetings and so that we can talk about stuff and you know share Things with people, you know, like Dan put up a bunch of like different fonts that people can use for lettering and stuff like that. I mean, it's really been just a really terrific resource um, for everybody. And it's nice. You know, it shows the kind of guy that Dan is that he's going to go out of his way to help out, you know, other people. So, you know, it's it's good. It's been a great process so far. Um, I think once he reads the script for the second issue, he's not going to like working with me very much. <laughs> There's a lot of Sony gets disemboweled. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the next issue. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of the point, though. Right. So, I think it'll be fine. So, when you work <laughs> with someone who is taking your words and making them a visual reality, what? I mean, what does that end up? being how does that relationship end up working because is it just sort of you write out what you want to see and he does it or is there a little bit more back and forth than that there's i mean there is back and forth um i mean it just simple it just simply boils down to you know i i write what i like intend for the scene and then you know dan will say like you've got way too many panels on this page you know it's like here's the important things this is what you should give space to. And he like really lays everything out. Um, you know, and the other thing is, is I, it's not that I don't care cause I really do care. I'm very involved in it, but you know, the specific layout of things, you know, I want to give Dan as much leeway as he can. To, to right. That's why you're working with him. To. Let right. him do his job and you do yours. And you know, that's, yeah. you get the best product that way. And so for the most part, you know, I'm writing stuff that I see visually just in terms of plot, you know, things like that. Yeah. And then Dan's the one that really ties it together and make it makes it look good. You know, he's the one that's kind of 
telling the story through the pictures. And so it really is kind of a, a combination of the two, you know. Is, um, is this is this the first comic that you've written? I've written um, other comics before. Uh, this is the first full-length one that I'm producing. Okay. So you're not new to the whatever the writing style of no. writing a comic is. No, I've written... Um, before I wrote the the first issue of this, I probably written about like a dozen or so short yeah. scripts, you know, a bunch of like five page scripts, but also some like 10 and 15 page scripts. Uh, this is clocking out at 25. So it was the first like full length comic that I'd written um, since writing the first issue I've written. Oh, uh, probably about six or seven other full-length stories. And then um, I've been working on a graphic novel that I need to get back to. Um, but that's going to probably end up being like a hundred some pages. And I'm mm-hmm. like 30 pages into that. And so I need to get, get done with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's once you kind of get the hang of it, of the script and things like that, it's very similar to writing a play. Um, yeah. You know, in the same way that I would write a play and I'd put very minimal stage directions because you want to give room for your collaborators. When I'm writing the comic, I'm basically only putting the important things in each panel. And then Dan kind of fills in the rest. Right. Uh, and there is, there is a syntax. There is a structure to writing the script for a comic book. And I don't know. I, I, I didn't realized that until i don't know only maybe a couple years ago when i saw a script for a comic and i just thought oh of course yes of course it would be this you have to write it down first and of course there's a structure that is non-visual that then becomes the visual yeah um so yeah that's that's that that is interesting to me at least to see you know how these things same idea with like a screenplay and and a script you know, for uh, a stage show, they each have their own very structured way of of being laid mm-hmm. out on the page that then can be turned into whatever the medium ends up being. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, there's some great resources online, too. Um, the script style that I use is based on um, kind of what they call the, the dark horse, the house style of script, um, just in terms of the way they lay things out, you know. Um, character names are all caps on one line and then right below it is their, is their dialogue, little things like that. You know, just the way they set the script up. I really liked it. I thought it looked really good. And so I've basically kind of adopted that as my, as my script style, but just like playwriting, everybody's the way they write their, everybody's scripts look different, Um, but it gets the job done and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and somebody once said that it's like, you know, comic scripts are funny because if you are good at, if you're good enough at what you do, there's only going to be like three people that ever read your script, you know? Um, and this one writer that I really admire, Kieran Gillen, he said basically all of his scripts are just love letters that he writes to the artist of the, the book that he's working on, you know? Yeah. So he'll throw in specific jokes that he knows Jamie McKelvey is going to get, you know, he'll make references to things. There some of their like shared experiences. He's not just writing just bland descriptions. It's just like, you know, it's, you know, making it fun and everything for them. Um, right now I'm at a weird point where I more people are seeing my scripts, so I'm kind of leaving it as more of a professional tone because I still shop scripts around on like the weird 
hope that one day Dark Horse is just going to be like, hey, this guy looks good. Let's just hire him and <laughs> get him writing stuff. And I'll be like, yeah, you got it. Um, so we'll see. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, the actual, you know, duty of writing scripts for comic books is actually fun. I don't know. I mean, it's nice to just sit down and just be like, okay, what is it? What will this look like? What angle should we see this at? Do we want to look at the back of someone's head as they're getting shot or should it be from the front? It's things like that, that you kind of like sit and think about. And then people look at you weird when you're writing on the train and, <laughs> you're, you've got your, your gun fingers pointing yeah. in directions <laughs> at your own head or god forbid yeah. at other people's heads yeah so last night i was <laughs> i was writing and i was like what angle should this be at so we can really see somebody get disemboweled i was just like where should where should they be standing and i was like it's like ah, i shouldn't be doing this on the amtrak <laughs> Well, whatever. Nobody cares. Yeah. And then you just say, it's all right, I'm a comic book writer, and then they immediately take you to jail. <laughs> They're just like, ah, oh, comic writer? What the hell is that? Uh, <laughs> it's funny, too, because most of these, like, get-together that I go to, I'm just like, oh, yeah, so I'm doing the, the comic board, and I can, I show people, like, the art and stuff. And they're like, oh, so you drew this? And I'm like, no, but I, but I wrote the words that, that now this is for. And it's just weird. I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> Because people are looking at it, it's like, yes, this was this happened because of me, but you know, Dan and Andrea did all the hard hard work, and so and I was just kind of like, uh, here, <laughs> do the draw this. I don't know. I so I just I'm just like, yep. As soon as there's words on the page and like dialogue and stuff, then it'll be fine. Then people will understand. But until then, I'm just like, yeah, I'm I'm involved in it. Yeah, Trust me. Yeah, but, it's uh, funny. Yeah, because your Kickstarter and actually your website, a lot of the stuff that you've got up there, is, there's no dialogue. It's just... No, no there's no dialogue. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's for the specific, uh, specific reason. You know, the lettering yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Of yes, of course. It goes in. Yeah. But however, though, it does make me kind of feel like, oh, man, well, <laughs> uh, I don't know, guys. Yeah. I, I did write it, I promise. <laughs> Well, like I said, I'm super stoked to read this, um, and I just want to say for folks listening here, uh, your, give your contact info, not your contact information, but information oh, where they you, can find yeah. more. Uh, so you've got WarwickJohnson.com, that's W-A-R-W-I-C-K, and then Johnson, which I hope everyone can spell, .com. So WarwickJohnson.com, yep. and that's, you You also do like reviews of movies and all sorts of different things on there, right? Uh, I did. You did, I did for a while, for a while. yeah. Um, and I did like comic book reviews. Um, I don't have time, so <laughs> right now the website is pretty much just uh, when I have time to post scripts that I've written because I have a bunch of scripts that I wrote that are not yeah. on my website. Yeah. Um, but so people can go on and they're like, "Oh, this comic book script sounds good." So I've got a bunch of my five-page scripts up that people can peruse and things like that. Um, cool, cool. I have a uh, short comic book that I'm working on right now with Jason Murr. Um, M-U-H-R is his name. I'm not entirely sure how to say it. I just know him as Jason. Uh, Jason and I are working on a five-page story that I wrote called Old Soldiers. Um, that should be perhaps like fall around. Um, you know, cool. it's just, it's, it's just five pages. So we're probably, I'm probably going to just share it on my website. Um, 
and hopefully maybe get into an anthology somewhere. So he and I are working on that. So I'll have another, you know, short comic that's out pretty soon. Um, but if anybody for information on empty grave, they can go to emptygravecomic.com. Uh, don't go to emptygrave.com. It's a haunted house. Um, <laughs> it beat us to that URL, but emptygravecomic.com will, will take you where you want to go. And then we're also on Facebook. Um, I think it's facebook.com slash empty grave DLG. Uh, or you can just search for the empty grave daddy's little girl on Facebook. And then you can find our page and like us there. Cause we also share artwork and progress on the book. And, you know, occasionally I'll put, you know, dog pictures up or something. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> All right. So empty grave uh, Warwick, thanks a, a bunch for doing this. Um, oh yeah. I think, Absolutely. I think people are going to be excited to, to see this. And I hope this does well for you. You can put this, uh, Oh yeah. This well, podcast got a little... up on your site and you know, yeah, we've got a little press section on the website, so I'll, uh, I'll put it up there so that people can give it a listen. So, definitely. I appreciate cool. it, Don. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you betcha. You betcha. Did Butch did Butch manage to get in there at some point? I should. I should we should put Butch in his warrior's vest and get like a little six shooter to put around his waist and just I tell you what, him. that would that would be a skinwalker right yeah. there. <laughs> Butch already is a skinwalker. You could fit about five more dogs in his skin. It's true. Yeah, I, I actually think sometimes that he might just be made up of tiny dogs that are just wondering about. <laughs> like the boogeyman out of yeah. uh, Nightmare Before <laughs> like Christmas. From, uh, yeah. You should Shewer. put in some product placement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is like, that a ah, Pepsi hanging ah. out of her satchel? <laughs> now I enjoy a good, refreshing overall from Half Acre Brewing. And then they yeah. the big can. Um, MrChrisRogers.com can be, uh, you know, like... Uh, just in the background. Just No, it, it can be like... <laughs> branded into the horse. It can be uh, branded yeah. in the ass of her horse. MrChrisRogers.com <laughs> Actually, before it goes up, I'll throw it in my Dropbox so you can listen to it. Um, that way, if there's anything that you go, oh, this doesn't sound right, or oh, I, I said the wrong thing, or oh, I sound like an idiot saying this <laughs> because you weren't listening to yourself talk, which I found I did a lot the first time when I interviewed Vaughn. But uh, because I was doing the editing, I was able to just cut that shit. <laughs> just trim it out. Um, um, I'm used so- to sounding like an idiot, so I think <laughs> happens to me a lot how uh so you know that that'll be the show